Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. David Remnick is a man of many talents. Not only has he been editing The New Yorker magazine for nearly two decades, but he's also an accomplished reporter and author, and now he's a radio host overseeing a brand new radio show and podcast called The New Yorker Radio Hour. What we want to see happen more and more is that the reporting talents of the people at The New Yorker will come to fruition on the radio as well. Today, where we live in print and on air, David Remick takes us for a behind-the-scenes look at his new program. Coming up later... Outside of this park is nothing but blight, poverty, concrete jungle, crime. But you come up here and all that disappears for a few square miles, you know? We'll find out how the Radius Project is giving a new voice to Hartford's diverse neighborhoods. You can join the conversation where we live. It's after this news. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up, we're going to chat with some of the people behind Connecticut Public Broadcasting's brand new Radius Project. We're trying to map Hartford in a new way and finding some interesting stories along the way. But first, David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, has already worn a lot of hats in his career. He recently took on a brand new radio show and podcast called The New Yorker Radio Hour. He joins us from a studio at The New Yorker today to tell us more about the show, which is being produced in conjunction with WNYC. It airs Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on WNPR. And David Remnick, welcome to Where We Live. Great to talk to you, John. Before I have you describe what The New Yorker Radio Hour is, maybe you can just talk about your role in it. I, I heard about this project for a while, and then I heard you were going to be hosting it, and I thought, you know, isn't he, like, busy? <laughs> Yeah, he's a little busy, but everybody in the world is a little busy. I am in the really safe and good hands of people from WNYC, which is in New York, as you know, and they've set up shop here in the offices of The New Yorker. We're downtown at, at the very end of Manhattan Island on in One World Trade Center, new building, and we have a studio and an area for radio just one floor up from where we do our our work on the website and the men, the magazine and the rest. And they're terrific people and I'm their student. And what it means to be host is I'm not on the show for the full hour. Um, I do, generally speaking, an interview that might go 15, 20 minutes with somebody. But there are all kinds of produced pieces, reporting pieces, comedy pieces. And the show is meant to be of the magazine. The people that are on are part of The New Yorker. But it's for radio. It's We can't do things like read the cartoons out loud. That's not going to work for radio. It's, it's, it's its own form, radio, and we're learning it bit by bit. But it is interesting. You have had segments where your cartoonists are talking about the jokes that they're writing, and that's a fascinating window into the world, right? It's hard to talk about cartoons on the radio. Lord knows I've tried on my show before, but that just, I think, does what I hope the show's going to do for us is is give a little window inside the creative process of the world of The New Yorker, right? I think there'll be little bits of that, just enough. But the rest of the show should really be substantive, whether it's the substance of 
comedy or the substance of reporting or politics or what have you. It's not a show about The New Yorker, except here and there, just little windows of it. So when it comes to comedy, for example, we've had Lena Dunham, the star and creator of the show Girls, do a piece for us. And we'll have all kinds of people who write for the magazine and have been part of the magazine and in the orbit of The New Yorker doing radio things. In your second episode, actually, you interviewed comedian Amy Schumer about her evolution as a comic, and we have a little bit of tape from that conversation. Let's listen into a little bit of that. I wouldn't do any of my old jokes now. Because they're, you, they, you, they feel stale or because you thought they were offensive or, or no, off in some way? because they feel stale, and I have a yeah. bigger audience now, and it's more people are looking to me, and I have become, in some ways, a role model. And so I have more responsibility. What I liked about that interview, David, and I think what is going to be a part of the show is Amy Schumer is someone who you kind of can't avoid right now, right? There are plenty of interviews with her, but I, I felt like you were getting at some things that, that you maybe didn't hear elsewhere. Well, I think Amy Schumer had, and I love Amy Schumer, and I think that film that she did with Judd Apatow is terrific, and I went to see her at the Apollo Theater, and her TV show is, is superb. It's kind of the year of Amy Schumer, or was the year of Amy Schumer. But there were, there were aspects of her act that came up for question by people who were her, both her critics and her fans. And instead of dismissing it out of hand, she's a very, very intelligent and thoughtful person, and, and she kind of thought these things through. It's, a, it's similar to Lena Dunham. Lena Dunham was criticized because her first season, there was really no presence of African Americans on the show. And instead of just becoming defensive, getting into a defensive crash and being dismissive, she took it on board and it shaped the second season. And I think Amy Schumer and it, it similarly um, became an even deeper and more interesting comedian by responding to what amounts to a critical conversation. This sort of big profile that The New Yorker is known for allows you to get into some of these issues with, say, a comedian that wouldn't be a part of their act. How is it different in your mind creating a, a cohesive conversation on the radio to get into some of those subjects as opposed to doing it in a print piece? Is there something different that you're learning to do when you're, when you're asking Amy Schumer about these things on the radio as opposed to trying to put it together in a, in a long-form piece? It's incredibly different. Remember, a written piece, the interviewing part, is just the beginning. It's the gathering of material. It's the watching that subject in action. You'd be, in Amy Schumer's case, if you were writing a profile of her, you would not only interview her at length, but you'd try to watch her do things, work with her team at the television show, or negotiate life in some way. A conversation on the radio is something very, very different and more focused on the conversation itself. The master of this, I think we'd all acknowledge, certainly on public radio, is Terry Gross. And what she does is, if I listen to her correctly, and I have for years, is that she's very conversational, but she is very sly, very shrewd, and knocks the subject subtly off balance so that they're not giving their usual answers. They're not, you know, everybody, particularly famous people, have wrote answers, set answers, that they're ready to give at a moment's notice. Right? If you ask George Clooney about being handsome or uh, his years on ER, he's got a little tape recorder in his head, and it's going to unspool the answers that he's done a thousand times. A good interviewer, and Terry Gross is, is kind of the apogee of this, and others, I'm sure, are really good at it, including your own good self, but you throw that 
subject off balance so that they're not so totally relaxed that they're both boring and giving you their kind of auto answers. So now that you have this radio show, do you often think, okay, here's the person we we really want to get behind. We really want to get into. We want to learn about them. But we really think that the radio interview is the more appropriate way or the traditional print piece is is the more important way. I mean, are you finding yourself now having these conversations saying, the thing I really want to hear from Amy Schumer isn't something I'd read on the pages of The New Yorker. It's something that I want to hear her say. Well, we've never pro- we didn't profile Amy Schumer this time around. I thought Amy Schumer was kind of over-profiled in every magazine in the world. The piece that we did have was Emily Nussbaum, our great television critic, doing a critical piece about Amy Schumer. I'm a little, I have to admit, as an editor, a little reluctant to do profiles of people who are being profiled everywhere all at once because they're on a huge publicity tour, because they have a big movie coming out, because the book is coming out. Now, sometimes it can't be avoided. I know radio people, television people, print people, and me- and web people all encounter this quandary, but I want those profiles in the magazine to have a lasting journalistic or literary quality so that six months from now they can be read for profit. What we do on the radio is going to be something different. You want it to be as optimally great for the radio at that moment as possible. And it's important for me and all my colleagues at The New Yorker to acknowledge that radio is different than what we're doing at the magazine. Where they overlap and they overlap well, great. But where they don't, we shouldn't force it. When you talk about overlap, I guess I'm wondering how much you've looked into what we all see is the obvious overlap between one who reads The New Yorker and one who listens to Terry Gross. You know what I mean? I mean, this, these seem to be audiences that are tailor-made for each other. How much do you know about the public radio audience, David, and how much did you think about that as you were going into this new venture? I think if I'm lazy about it, I kind of vaguely know that, yeah, there's an overlap of, of people who read The New York Times, listen to public radio, read The New Yorker, live in the coasts and, you know, this kind of cliche. But I also know that, uh, having been around the country and elsewhere, that what's thrilling is that your audience also can surprise you. And I think the last thing you should be as an editor is relaxed, self-satisfied, bathing in the warm water of your kind of uh, liberal audience that you're giving them exactly what they expect. I think that's a a recipe that's not good for the listener or the reader, and it's not a good recipe for the editor. You want to challenge that audience, challenge yourself. You know, we have a piece coming out next week that's by Tom Mallon, who is a conservative, and he's writing about the John Birch Society, and it's a really interesting piece by a conservative about not only the history of the conservative movement and the John Birch Society, which is an extreme version of it, but his disappointment in conservative extremists and as a conservative. And that's not a point of view necessarily that every New Yorker reader is going to expect or have, and quite frankly, we should do it more often. Not because I want to make the magazine conservative or right-wing or anything like that, but we should come at things from surprising angles and ask tougher questions of ourselves and not get self-satisfied or relaxed Otherwise, we're not going to understand a large part of the world. You know, it's incumbent upon us to understand 
things that we might be dismissive of. Mm. One of the great things about the public radio audience, too, that those of us who work on the coasts often forget is that public radio is the only source of contact, really, with the media in places like rural Maine or in large swaths of any western states. So that public radio may mean something in New York City or in Boston or in San Francisco or, or even Hartford, but it means something entirely different if you're in Wyoming and it's the only signal you get, right? And that's I, one of I the nice things about I what think, we do. I think that's true, but of course the Internet has changed all of these assumptions, too. That if you are sitting in um, Laramie, if you are sitting in Taos, New Mexico, you and you have a decent internet connection, there's no podcast, there's no publication, uh, there's no radio station even that is beyond your listenership. And I would think that with time, that's going to overturn some of our presumptions. The things that are that are losers in this revolution are things like local newspapers that have lost the capacity to survive economically or, or thrive and have either gone out of business or have diminished themselves so much in terms of their resources that they're not able to do the job that they were before. And what concerns me is, you know, let's say in a, it could be on the coast or it could be in the Midwest or, or the Southwest, if in that city the mayors and judges were corrupt and being sent to jail by the local newspaper and investigative reporters there, what's replaced it? I want to know what's replaced it. Is it, is it going to be public radio? Is it going to be some new form of media? That's an important question to ask and have fulfilled over time. We're talking with David Remnick. He's the editor of The New Yorker and host of The New Yorker Radio Hour. It airs Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock on WNPR. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll hear more from David about radio, about podcasting, and also about The New Yorker magazine. This is where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up later, we're going to be hearing about the new Radius Project from WNPR. Right now, though, we're talking to David Remnick. He's the editor of The New Yorker. He's the host of The New Yorker Radio Hour, which now airs Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock on WNPR. Let's listen to a little bit of an interview that you did recently. Gloria Steinem was on the road, and she was actually on my show not too long ago talking about her, her new book, uh, My Life on the Road. Let's listen to a little clip from that conversation. Well, to address some of the deep reasons for hostility to women in leadership roles, women of every race, Hillary and everybody else, I I think in a deep sense we won't escape this until men are raising children as much as women are and women are as active in the world outside the home as men are. Because right now we uh, associate, most of us, women too, have been raised by women as infants and little children, we associate female authority with emotionality and nurturance and home. We don't see it as a comfortable kind of leadership in the outside world, a rational leadership where we've mostly seen men. So I, I don't think this is going to go away easily. It's, it's going to take quite a long time. That's Gloria Steinem talking on the New Yorker Radio Hour. What did you take away from that interview with Gloria Steinem, David? Well, I, I have to say, you know, as a journalist, you're not supposed to um, get too admiring of anything. But I looked back on her career as a political activist 
and as somebody who not only was herself, but able to get so many different kinds of people in the room, as it were, that I, I am just filled with admiration for her. The book is fine. The book is interesting, but to me, her best book is her life, her career. She has enormous integrity, and I was, I was really delighted and, and, and proud to have a conversation with her. Talk a bit about crafting that conversation, because as you said before, people who are on book tours, people who've been interviewed thousands of times, have the little tape recorder playing in their head about what they might say to any yeah. given question. And Lord knows she's been asked every, every question in the book. When you approach talking to Gloria Steinem, who's had this amazing career and been so influential, what is it you want to get at? First of all, you have to read the book. A friend of mine, Michael Beschloss, who's a historian, American historian, had written a book about the U-2 incident. He went to a radio station, perfectly fine radio station. I think it was a rock, rock and roll place. And he sat down for the interview that you do on book tour. And the interviewer said, so, you too. Is Bono really as awesome as they say? <laughs> At which point Michael Beschloss said, wrong you too. And I totally understand why somebody who's got a daily show or doing any number of interviews every day can't possibly read every book that they're talking about. But this is just once a week, and I try to do the reading. That's number one. But at the same time, you have to presume that your listener has not read the book because it's just out. And he or she may not, might not get to it either ever or not for, for a good while. So you have to balance the need for background, setting things up, who is Gloria Steinem, getting the basics out there in some logical and absorbable way, but also keep Gloria Steinem interested and make sure that she's not falling into, or anybody else, falling into their talking points, if that's who they are. And, and the worst, of course, are politicians and movie stars, people who are interviewed for a living. Do you feel like in the long life, we hope, of the New Yorker Radio Hour, you're going to do a lot of politician interviews, or is that the sort of thing you're going to try to avoid? I don't see any reason to avoid it. Political reporting and political journalism has a primary responsibility, and that's to keep pressure on power. We elect these people, or they're appointed, and the most important thing for journalism to do is put pressure on them to keep them honest, to keep them open, to find out what they're, if they are concealing things, things that, are, that should be that brought into the, to the light of day to understand why they're making the decisions they're making, uh, stupid or intelligent, pressure on power. And that goes for whether it's an interview or uh, there's nothing worse than listening to a fawning interview on radio or television or seeing it happen in print. Politicians shouldn't be fawned on. Neither should anybody. That's primary. So I, I, I see no reason not to interview politicians, but just they, they, it has to be done in a certain way. You mentioned Terry Gross. What else did you listen to on the radio growing up? I mean, what do you what do you think when you think of the radio? Well, I grew up in New Jersey and in the town that I saw or perceived as not exactly the height of excitement. And yet the when I was, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 years old, it was in the thick of the late 60s, early 70s. A revolution was taking place beyond my quiet streets. And the way I tuned into it was two ways. One, the music, and the other was through the radio. And I don't mean by listening to the music on the radio, by which, I, of course, I did, but listening to all the 
tumult of the world and in not a conventional way. Television was very, very conventional with some rare exceptions. Last night I watched a documentary about the debates at the 1968 conventions between William F. Buckley and Gore Vidal. First of all, they're embarrassing in, in, in a certain way, but they were unusual and they were contentious and they, they hinted at the, the revolution that was taking place in so many corners and so many ways in the streets. And I heard this on the radio at 2 o'clock in the morning on WBAI. Long interviews with everyone from Allen Ginsberg to Bob Dylan to Joan Baez or Eldridge Cleaver, whoever it might be. That world came in through the radio. And what I see and hear now on the radio is a lot of innovation. Not for nothing are podcasts like Serial and This American Life and Radiolab and all the rest. They're being listened to by people and younger people because they take on subjects that are fascinating, of this world, and they take them on in a in a literary way that translates to radio. That interests me a lot. Is it fair to say, though, that because a lot of the popularity of those programs that you just mentioned has come from podcasting, that there's an awful lot of self-selection that is there that wasn't available to you listening to the revolutions of the 60s and 1970s? I mean, you and I had a different experience listening to culture come through the radio because it was being chosen for us as opposed to being able to select the hour that we want to hear to go with our day. Do you think that that changes anything about the impact? No, I I would disagree. I would say, look, when it came to network television, you're absolutely right, because there were only, in those days, there were three networks, and the news was the same, and it was right at the center of opinion, and they weren't challenging your thinking. They were kind of confirming it. I mean, that's a series of cliches, but you know what I mean. Network television was very conformist, and everybody watched it, and they all heard the same news. Radio was much more diverse even then. Now you have the technological capacity to listen to whatever you want to listen to at at whatever time you want to listen to it. And I'm fully aware that the listeners of the New Yorker Radio Hour can either listen to it at 10 a.m. on Saturday morning uh, or whatever time it's playing on in their area on what's now called terrestrial radio. And people can also press a button on a website the WNYC website or whoever, however they're going to get it, and listen to it when they want to or download it and listen to it at their at their leisure. That, to me, is fine and not such a radical departure from the radio past. And look, even with The New Yorker, I'm fully aware that in a nation of 300 million people and in a, in a world of many billions, that only a few million people are reading The New Yorker. But a few million people, when you actually see what that looks like, you go to Yankee Stadium and that's 60,000 people, and you multiply that by as many as it takes to get to a few million, that's, that's an audience that, um, that you can't be too sad about. That's pretty great. I, I want to listen to a, a little bit more from your program, and this is from an interview that you did with jazz pianist Robert Glasper. At one point during the conversation, you asked him about whether he feels it's his mission to guide young people back into the world of jazz, uh, not just to his music, but to the music of people like Miles Davis and Thelonious Monk. So let's listen to his response. Somewhat is that. Somewhat is it's just like it's about Christian Scott and Marcus Strickland and um, Kenneth Whalem. Yeah, contemporaries, my friends. Miles doesn't have a problem with selling records. <laughs> it's my contemporaries that are having a problem. So my, my, my thing is, hey, y'all, you know, all jazz doesn't sound alike. There's a young, fresh sound out there that has influence of our music. So that's why I chose to do 
jazz trio, but do songs that people of my time today know. Kendrick Lamar, Janae Aiko, Bilal, John Legend, Radiohead, you know, because those are people that, and albums and artists that are relevant now. I'm so glad you did this interview, David, and I, and I love him and his music. And I was wondering um, if you felt, when you came away from that, a little bit more hopeful about the state of jazz today, because there's been a lot of uh, dirges written for jazz recently. Well, Robert Glasper is an interesting figure in that he's a bridge figure. He's got jazz capacities and abilities, and he's studied very deeply, and he plays it really well. At the same time, unlike a lot of jazz players, he's interested in contemporary composers. As you mentioned, he was, as he mentioned, he, he's been on Kendrick Lamar's records. Uh, they've collaborated, and he's collaborated with a lot of hip-hop people, and that is totally of interest to him. What I worry about, and you're talking to somebody who does listen to jazz a fair amount and grew up with a lot of it, what I worry about is the museumification of jazz. When I go to a jazz club, generally speaking, the audience is not young. And it's not unlike going to a symphony audience, too. If you go to hear a, you know, a, to see a subscription concert at Carnegie, not Carnegie Hall so much as Avery Fisher Hall, or what's now called Geffen Hall, you know, the age is not young. And it, that tells you something. And what you hope for in the case of both classical music and jazz, there's so much to offer. It's such a diverse music that sooner or later people will come around to it. And a figure like Robert Glasper is not only a musician, but he's also an evangelist. He's an evangelist for musics that maybe the Kendrick Lamar listener could use a little, you know, shove toward hearing. And I think one of the problems with the museumification, if that's a word that you mentioned, is you walk into a coffee shop, and if they're playing jazz, it's very likely they're playing a Miles Davis record, and it's very unlikely that they're playing a contemporary record. And that's that's something that I suppose we'll need to change through his work and through others. But um, Look, I, I, let's not speak ill of Miles. I mean, look, to me, Miles is, is Beethoven. It's Bach, it's, it's Haydn, it's, it's Mozart, it's, it's eternal. To listen to Miles Davis is eternal, and, and the, you know, the music of the spheres. He's, he's a genius and was a genius. And no one, including music critics, can get to everything and hear everything. Uh, so when someone with a musical mind like Robert Glasper points you in certain directions, that's something of value to me. So what are some things that you have planned for the radio show that you're really looking forward to, some, some things that you just can't wait to do? I think as we evolve... What we want to see happen more and more is that the reporting talents of the people at The New Yorker, and obviously they have to space out their time to do it, will come to fruition on the radio as well. And it's not lost on any of us that there's an enormous amount of innovative reporting going on on radio, on podcasts, that we should learn how to make our own. It shouldn't be the same. Uh, you know, no one's pretending that we're just going to, you know, we're going to be Sarah Koenig and do serial. She's Sarah Koenig and doing serial quite well, thank you, or Ira Glass or, or any of those people. But what's fascinating about the current scene is that the world is cracked open where, where sound is concerned, where the way stories are told are concerned. And the New Yorker has always led the way 
in writing of a certain kind in a, in a very diverse way, and we want to see what we can do in this medium. David Remnick is editor of The New Yorker and host of The New Yorker Radio Hour. David, congratulations on the program. We're so happy to have you here, and thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. I'm delighted, and I really thank your listeners, and I hope they enjoy the program. When we come back, we're going to hear about the Radius Project. It's mapping Hartford in a brand new way. But first, some people now will tell you why you should support all the programs you hear on WNPR. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up on tomorrow's show, the 2016 presidential debates have been loaded with rhetoric about a so-called ISIS caliphate. But what exactly is a caliphate anyway? And what does it mean to say that ISIS has one? We'll take a closer look. We'll also talk to best-selling author Robert Kaplan about his new book, In Europe's Shadow. Hope you can join us tomorrow on Where We Live. Now, we just heard about a radio show that's been a long time in the making, the New Yorker Radio Hour. Now we're going to learn about another, a project started right here at WNPR. I want to welcome in Julia Pastel, who's a writer, the co-founder of CT Improv, and the co-host of the new Radius Project here at WNPR. Welcome back to the show, Julia. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And also joining us is Katie Tolarski, WNPR's executive producer, who is uh, helping to produce this program. And uh, Katie, welcome back to the show. Hi, John. So tell us about the Radius Project. What is it? So the Radius Project is a uh, hyper-local storytelling project that came out of a jobs uh, grant that we got funded by the Greater Hartford Arts Council and the City of Hartford. So we partnered here at WNPR with some local uh, freelancers. We partnered with Julia Pastel, who, of course, is a writer and just a great Hartford lover, Hartford person, (laughs) and uh, Jamil Ragland, who has written for the Hartford Current. He's another writer and just a great uh, creative person in Hartford. Um, Shana Surik, a photographer, Jay Holt, who's one of our producers here. And we came up with the idea of the Radius Project where we uh, pick, you know, five points in Hartford that um, might be more well-known, and then we tell stories of people and places within a half mile of those Radius points. So so you pick those points, and then essentially, Julie, just kind of walking around and meeting people. That's right. Yeah, I mean, we had a million different ways that we found stories or stories came to us. Um, we we would meet people on the street or we would go to a big event and then kind of follow someone home. <laughs> that sounded more creepy than it was. <laughs> um, or we would hear about cool programs that um, people might not know about, like programs through Buckley High School or um, things uh, down by Mazzucato's. And we would just gather as much as we could. I mean, we did really hundreds of interviews to find these really neat stories. And we think that we got people to tell their own stories, which is one of our one of our goals with the project. We didn't come in saying, I know what this place is all about. We went in asking people, what does this place mean to you? What does Hartford mean to you? And what don't we already know about it? And it was really important that Julia and Jamil were um, hosting from their perspective as Hartford residents. All the music, the theme music is Hartford music or from Hartford musicians. So it's a really Hartford based um uh, podcast. Mm-hmm. So, so how did it change your relationship with the city, Julia? Because, as Katie said, you know you're involved in a lot of things in the arts in Hartford. You know a lot of people here, but this puts you in some different situations in the city. Uh, how did it change your relationship with Hartford? Well, I think anyone in any city, you know, if you're there for enough time, you think, you know, you get this smug attitude, like I know what's going on, I know the basic deal. Um, but this project really taught me and many people that there's just an infinite amount of information, especially about a city as diverse and, you know, complicated as Hartford can be. So pushing myself to go spend a significant amount of time in different neighborhoods or with different people um, really made me realize that the, the stories here are limitless. 
and that it's absolutely worth continuing to dig into your city and deepen your relationship with your city. We're, we're talking with Julia Pistel and Katie Talarski. They're part of the Radius Project, which is a new project by WNPR. It's a podcast. You can find out more at radiusproject.org. So it's not technically a radio show. So it's something a little different for us. It also has a lot of beautiful pictures when you go to the website there. Um, a lot of it is the voices, though, Katie. Maybe let's hear some of the voices. Who, who are we going to hear from first? Sure. So our first episode was centered around the Caney Park pool. And um, Julia and Jay and Jamil were walking around the pool, walking around the park. And they ran into a man named Gregory Richard who was fishing at the Caney Park pond. And he sort of shouted at them from across the the park and mm-hmm. saw the mic flag maybe and said, oh, you're from WNPR. I listen to you all the time. I never see you here. And he just then started talking about his love for Keeney Park. Every time I walk through here, I think of two things. One, Henry Keeney, the guy that dedicated this park. What the hell he had that he could give this much land to the city of Hartford. And then I think of this. He dedicated this park to the residents of Hartford that it could be nothing but a park. But out of all the parks in Hartford, this one is the least maintained. And I wonder why. I think I know the reason why. I mean, look where it's at. It's in the middle of the underpoverished neighborhood. Outside of this park is nothing but blight, poverty, concrete, jungle, crime. But you come up here and all that disappears for a few square miles, you know? It's nice. I mean, and this park belongs to everybody, you know? It could be nothing but a park for the residents of the city of Hartford. How nice, you know? I've been coming to this park, I'm 52 since I was five years old, and I live less than an eighth of a mile from here. I always came to this pond. I've watched them drain this pond a few times. I've watched them build these docks. I've watched them transform the pond. Um, I used to ride bikes through here. I went to the service, I got out, I came up here jogging. Uh, I mean, it's just so much going on up here, man, you know? And then it's just so underappreciated because people just not taught how to appreciate nature. I love this park, man. I mean, I probably come into the day I die, man, you know? One of the voices from the Radius Project, which we're talking about here on Where We Live Today. And, and Julie, just hearing some of the stories about Keeney Park, I mean, it's an amazing, amazing place. It's acres and acres of just wildlife right in the middle of the city. Oh, yeah. I mean, Keeney, I would say above all, although, you know, my opinion on what the most underappreciated thing in Hartford is changes daily. But I think Keeney is shockingly underappreciated in the city. And what is so frustrating, the people who live near near to it, they know that they know how beautiful it is. I mean, Keeney Park was a place where Frederick Law Olmsted hung out as a boy. And the fact that that's not a daily factoid that's thrown around with Mark Twain and Harriet Beecher Stowe is is a shame. But you can also hear in this clip, you know, what I really liked about this project is people who live uh, in Hartford are not afraid to live with the contradictions. He's saying this is a poor area. This is frustrating how, how this uh, city isn't as great as it could be. But I still love it despite that. And that was something that we heard over and over and over again is people willing to 
you know, grapple with their own neighborhood and their own experiences with the city. And then how how other people perceive them from outside and how they want to change perceptions. And it's very, yes, I mean, it's a complicated place because I think a lot of people are like Gregory Richard, where they, again, they love it so much and they want people to see how great it is. Yeah, it's, it's one of the things that I think the project is trying to do is is not just tell these stories for people who live in Hartford or just for people who don't come to the city at all. It's really about telling stories for, for both. Take us next, Julia, to, to Park Street in, in a conversation about Pelican Tattoo. Sure. I love this one. So, you know, with some of these interviews, we found places or perspectives that we were expecting or maybe they were a little surprising. But occasionally we found people or stories of people that – um, were just completely hidden gems. Um, and one of them is uh, Joe, the owner of Pelican Tattoo. Uh, he has a really cool history coming from New York to Hartford, and he has just been running this tattoo and piercing shop up on Park Street for a long time. Longtime residents of Hartford are probably shouting at their radios that he also had a fashion uh, boutique, I think, downtown a while ago. But he gave us his story, and on a personal level, it was just it was very moving. So, And this, this is Jay Holt, who is producing mm-hmm. this story that you'll hear, too. Right near the intersection of Park and Broad, there's a building that's covered in an enormous fluorescent mural. Below it, the giant pink banner for Pelican Tattoo. The shop has been a Park Street fixture for decades, so Julia and I stopped in to talk to the owner, Joe Bassetta, about its history in town. But we quickly learned we needed to start the story somewhere else. So when did you open the shop? Well, 1970, mm-hmm. in uh, New York City on the Bowery. It was a Pelican footwear, NYC. Footwear? Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, you know, my wife's a sculptor. She was my girlfriend at the time, and I was an artist. And we had a big loft on the Bowery. And we just had this idea, <clears throat> maybe we can do like a like a Carmen Miranda shoe, you know, like really high. So the originals, uh, my wife hand-carved. They were palm trees and, you know, different shapes. And uh, and she kept making, I say, go higher, you know, make them higher. And they kept evolving. And eventually we did it. You know, we would have one shoe that you could decorate like a, a thousand different ways, you know. So it just was endless, you know. We got an article written about us in the Village Voice. Nobody knew what the hell that was a platform. <laughs> and we, wow. we were the first. Wait know. a second. Did you invent the platform shoe? Well, reinvent. I mean, the Chinese did it 2,000 years ago. You know. Wow. Yeah, it was a big deal. <laughs> it was a big deal. I love that, Julia. <laughs> yeah, I, w- I was shocked. And uh, just after that, he told us he made shoes for... Uh, he made David Bowie's platform shoes and yeah. Mick ba- Jagger's platform shoes. So that's someone who lives, you know... At, from my house, like three-tenths of a mile away from my house, which is just incredible to me that, you know, you got to talk to your neighbors. That's that's one of the things. Like, you have to ask people about their stories because they've got some cool stuff hidden uh, in their backgrounds. You, the next story that we want to hear a little bit from, Katie, is, is actually, I think, one of my favorite episodes in this series from the Radius Project, and it takes us to Mount Olive Church as the Radius Point. And this is the neighborhood where the co-host uh, with Julia, Jamil Ragan, lo- lives, and we're hearing here uh, a little bit from a barbershop that's a local institution. That's right. So um, Jamil was really helpful with this episode and just sort of taking us through some of the places that he knows and t- talking to some of the people that he's um, run into in his in his neighborhood. So this is um, it's a G thing barbershop on Main Street. Liebert Fitzgerald Lester or G has I mean, I think the producers and hosts spent like hours and hours and hours with him because he's incredible mm-hmm. um, and a great storyteller and just a character. So here's him talking about um, his his shop. 
So in building this facility here, I have 40 chairs because this is actually the hairdresser and the barber salon is actually in the back. And then I have a coffee bar downstairs and I have a pedicure lounge upstairs and then I have three massage rooms. And so when I built this place, I knew that I was gonna use this as the platform to really grow my business. And what I mean by grow my business, I'm now accredited to teach barbering and cosmetology, aesthetics and nails. So, you know, we're constantly, we're constantly trying to make an impact in the community. And me building this place here, it was to inspire the young brothers. Because see, a lot of the young brothers, they're always looking at all of the so-called celebrities in the community are always guys who are doing something negative. But they could always turn and say, oh, I know G. You know, and, I, and I've seen little kids. They come, like they'll come in, uh, you know, they're my little homies. Tell him, didn't you build this? And I see the look in their face. They're more excited than I am saying that I built something. And so I know that that kid is inspired to one day believe that he can build something himself. Well, you come, you come here, you come here for me to talk junk to you. Remember, I'm mentoring you. I'm teaching you like one day you're going to be married, you're going to have a wife, you're not going to know what to do, but then you're going to go to your mental handbook that you got from the barber. Because see, one thing we do here in the barbershop, we teach men how to be men. Because a lot of men, they don't know what it takes to truly be a man. So as a result, when you find a man who's trying to be a man and he's struggling, he must come to his barber. I mean, even my man, my buddy Otis here, Otis struggled as well. I coach Otis. You know, I coach Otis all the time. I coach cut, these guys. Cut, cut, cut. <laughs> cut, man, cut, cut, cut. No, because Otis... <laughs> What Otis wants, Otis, Otis, Otis wants to get off the soapbox, man. It's so funny, Julia. That's a great piece of tape. Yeah, we absolutely love this. I mean, G can go on forever. We ha- we got hours and hours of him. Um, but I know we're almost done here, and uh, we have so many. We have five great episodes, um, and we're hoping to do more, both in Hartford and in other cities. But the other two are along the riverfront and uh, by Mazzucato's Bakery. So those are two great spots as well. That's right. So um, radiusproject.org is where people can go and listen to more stories and leave comments. And we love your feedback. This is sort of a pilot um, episodes here. So we'd love to continue to do this. And we want to hear from you. Executive producer of Where We Live and our other programs, Katie Talarski, Julia Pastel, the co-host of the Radius Project. Thank you both so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks for having so. us. This is Where We Live. 